Hey folks, this is Tyler from Being This Person here, of course. Um, I know I wouldn't say anything about the sound, but I'm going to give you a warning right up front. It was hot. There was AC on. You can hear it hissing in the background. And uh, we have another interview coming up with the person that is the peanut gallery in the background. So there's a little bit of noise. Uh, other than that, this is with a guy that I had met a few times, but I really didn't know at all. Uh, he was willing to sit down with me and do it, and I had a great time. And he is definitely a man of many stories, and I think you'll enjoy them. Uh, I would encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, it does help people find us. Uh, that is on, you know, whatever, like iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever they want to call themselves this week, Stitcher, CastBox, etc., etc. Uh, but yeah, subscribing, rating and reviewing, especially good ratings and reviews helps other people find us and listen to us and do please tell a friend because not just about us, of course, please tell them about us if you dig it, but about podcasts because podcasts are a good way to get people out there to not feel so alone. I think, uh, I think it does good things. You obviously listen to them. On that note, we do have an email. It is beingthisperson at gmail.com. No spaces, no capital letters. We are also on Facebook, easily found at beingthisperson. We do have a website, beingthisperson.com. No capitals, no spaces. Then there's Twitter. It is uh, under my name, but D-O-N-E-S-T-Y-L-E-R capitalize the D and the T uh, on Twitter. However you want to choose to do that, whatever. Uh, Not really great at it, but on that note, folks, thank you very much for listening, and let's roll the theme music. Disabled veteran, um, motorcyclist, surfer, academic, and an engineer, and pretty off the wall musician. What should we call you? Doug. There you go. Just go by Doug. Hell of a good friend. And a worse enemy. That's all of us. A little warning, there's a little peanut gallery, but he's going to try it because he's going to get his turn in a minute. Or about 60-some minutes. (laughs) I was born uh, by geographical coincidence in Fresno, California. My dad was Navy career, and so we moved around a lot. Didn't live in the greatest neighborhoods, so that made life interesting. Were you Navy as well? Uh, no, I spent 27 years in the Army. Okay. Ended my career with one last, quite literally, big bang. And it was, you can drive a desk 
and that was my option. I said, I'm combat arms. Yeah, I Sounds think I'll retire. I think I got my guess. 20 years in. Yeah, here's my paperwork. I'm out of here. <laughs> that was kind of a shock to the system because it took about two years for me to detox and detense from the military because your mindset is entirely different in the military than the civilian world, period. Um, you mean detox in a in a grander sense, not literally detoxification? Detox in a mental like, sense okay. of okay. the crap that's running around in your head. Uh, the You know, smells, sights that just are seared into your cortex. Because you were um, active duty, I'm guessing? Yeah. Where? Um, I joined in '80, and my first uh, base was Fort Knox, Kentucky. Uh, but then I ended up in Germany for two years. Came back from there, went to El Salvador and Nicaragua, <coughs> Costa Rica, Panama. That's drug uh, war times too. Uh, those were bad times. The desaparecidos was a reality. And we went out and found some of the burials, which that's just a nice way of saying the ditches full of bodies. It was bad. Um, let's see. Did Germany a few tours, uh, did a couple of UN missions uh, to Ethiopia, Eritrea. Yes, I was in Rwanda, it sucked. Um, you can't do anything. You just see things that you can't believe in the inhumanity, so to speak. Um, and I and I would read to people the comment about you know oh inhumane. No, actually, it's very humane because this is what humans do. Animals don't do the things we do to each other. Well, there are, there are clear studied cases of genocide amongst the, well, almost all the primates. But I, and they literally know, do it like humans, where they go and kill all the males, take all the women and children. Yeah. Jane Goodall even wrote it down. It's that yeah. kind of well I, uh, it's, it's I, I based my premise for that was on um, Samuel Langhorne Clemens' Mark Twain discussion with the devil uh, about, oh, that's inhumane. You know, people, not just genocide, et cetera, you know, but people beating a horse. Uh, and, and not just the genocide, but the mutilations that go with it, leaving people mutilated but not dead. Um, and it's like, no, that's what people do in the basest form. That's what they do. Unfortunate yes. truth. Apex predator. Right. Yes. Um, and that's person or animals left as a cautionary tale to others so that they know that if we come back or somebody else that's doing the genocide comes back. Um, it's heads on pikes theory. And seen that. And that's pretty ugly too. Um, but did Bosnia, we were talking about it, did Bosnia, Herzegovina, Venda the Stands, Waziristan, Uzbekistan, Pakistan, um, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, Syria, Kuwait. Well, this United is over Arab 20 years. So yeah, over 20 years. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time being deployed because I had a unique set of skills. I was an engineer, and I specialized in demolition. 
So <laughs> explosives were my thing. I like taking things apart. <laughs> I like building things, but I like blowing them up. I've built a bridge in Singapore that spanned a gorge that they said we couldn't do it. Well, to an engineer, that's like a, no, you can't do it. Watch this shit. Well, to anybody that's good at some craft, if they're told they can't do something within that craft, engineers look at things as as opposed to a politician saying, well, we can do this, and engineers go, well, okay, you think we can do this? Let's see if we can do this. And they'll come up with a, we can do it, as opposed to, you know, corporate America will just go, well, that's too expensive. If you're just let loose without a budget... You'll figure out a way to do things. <laughs> Throw money at it, and you can make stuff happen. You can fix almost anything by throwing yeah. money at it. Yeah. And, and your ability to reallocate a- assets and resources, which is to say steal, uh, or appropriate things from within the military from other sources is limitless. So you do things, and you have the job done of building the bridge and you get guys underneath it with spray cans doing graffiti yeah just because we can my name's on the bottom of a section of runway south of baghdad because it's like a puzzle of look to some extent you're signing your art yeah my work this is my work yeah and I mean, I tag every single one of these with my name, and it shows up on the sites with a, with a copyright C next to it. Because and everywhere I went, I found a two-wheel form of transportation, and either bought it or borrowed it. But if I bought it when I left, I gave it to a family that I knew, and pretty much for some of the places I was, it would seem extravagant to them, but to me, it was. I bought a $500 bike that gets me around. Yeah, and you're I just a GI in a third world country, yeah, like a developing country. and I give them the bike, and to me that's nothing, but to them it's everything kind did of Did you thing. ride more? When did you start riding? Because I, I saw your bike as I came in. i got to say, it's a beautiful piece of machinery. Yeah. I, it's but not my style one. of bike, but it's a beautiful piece of machinery. In, in 19... I, you get your turn. In 1969, at age 11, my cousins put me on a dirt bike on the streets of the north end of the San Fernando Valley and let me loose. I promptly crashed, got up, kicked the bike over, and took off. The reason I crashed was I kind of lost control and bounced off the side of a Buick. Luckily, Buicks were sturdy back then, and it didn't do anything to the bike or the Buick or me. It's not even in business anymore. Well, and I'd say, you know, I've never looked back as that as being, you know, the, like, the beginning of the whole thing, the beginning of the whole thing for me was getting a hold of bikes that people had blown up or for some reason wasn't running and fixing them and getting them at reasonable price. <laughs> they left it two years Start without r- fixing the carburetor up. And well, this, yeah. You know, old <laughs> gas in the tank bike. is the problem. Okay, <laughs> fine, we can fix that. And I ended up with a couple of motorcycles, and then I bought a street bike in a, uh, literally a basket case. All the pieces were in boxes. Um, the I love the, the biker term for basket case is different than everybody else's word. It means literally a handful of like laundry baskets and buckets with a milk crates, wood crates. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and I put it together, and I was 15 at the time when I put that one together. And 
didn't have a license. I'd already been riding around on a, uh, was a Honda CB400 oh, and relatively bike. new bike too yeah, at the time. Bike. And um, it was a recovered stolen bike basically. So there were some parts I had to find to put it together and I was 15 and my mom came unglued because she was fine with dirt bikes, sort of, kind of, but street bikes were out of the question. When she saw it coming together, she was like, oh, the bike's got to go or you got to go. And that was a silly thing for her to say because I just started packing. I was working after school, shoveling manure at a horse stable, uh, raising tropical fish, grooming dogs for one of the guys that trained the animals for the Incredible Journey for Disney. I did not know that at the time that that was what he did, but he had been a friend of my dad's and the Navy, and that was how I got the job, was going over there and doing that. And so I had money coming in. I picked up a job working at gas stations at the late night shift and stayed in school, got a cheapy apartment that was also in a not-so-great neighborhood and finished high school. Um, bought a Honda CB550. Uh, can't remember if it was 76 or 75. Just get off bikes for a minute. So you moved out of your home with a job into an apartment at 15 years old? Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of weird, but, you know... Was, was it just the motorcycle? I would imagine there were other issues going it was, on. It was it a will issue, a, you know, battle of wills. And I just was like, nope. I've had enough, and I can do this. Yeah, but see, we were mature enough back then, I, too, by our I, I moved out of my home, my mother's home, at 15, but I moved into my dad's home. And it was because we were having a battle of wills. We're, we get on famously now. But back then, we just could not see eye to eye, and I went to another home. You you actually broke out and like when by yourself home. at 15. That's pretty... It's pretty powerful. Oh, I mean, I look back on it, it's pretty insane to, to think that I could do that. And I see so many people that are in situations in their life that they go, oh, well, I, I just couldn't change my life. And I can't believe that they are willing to stay in a situation that, to them, they're constantly complaining about. It's like, well, then move. I agree with you a lot, but there are... I know. If we don't, I, I know a number of people who have been through those situations. Eventually, they do get to a moving point, or they die. I mean, that's kind of the way things go. But the ones that have gotten out of it, when they're in it, they will say that it seemed hopeless. It seemed like there was no other out. And I don't understand that myself personally, because it seems like my head and your head are more similar in that I don't like what's going on, so I just changed it. I just, well, I just do it. Nothing is hopeless. Yeah. Nothing is unchangeable. Um, during my time in the military, one of my first first sergeants that I had was a very cool, skinny, tall, black first sergeant who was a little bit on the eccentric side. Um, but as I learned more about him, he'd done four or five tours in Vietnam and got to know him. Normally most people don't get to know their first sergeant, but he was interested in motorcycles and I had a motorcycle. And his first question was, well, did you use your bonus check to buy that? 
And I said, well, no, here's my bonus check from when I enlisted. That was what I had in the bank. And he couldn't believe that I'd done that. And I said, well, I did all these things. And then I started working in car dealerships before I joined the service as a mechanic. And this is money I had saved up. So here I am in Germany with a top-of-the-line uh, high-end motorcycle, a GPZ, a BMW or? A GPZ 1100 Euro spec was a lot more than the U.S. bike, but I could get it for about $3,000 less than I could in the U.S. because as the military, you don't pay the local taxes, but you also don't pay the U.S. taxes right. on it. So you're literally just you're like buying the bike. Free. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're buying the bike. No tariffs, no taxes, no anything. Um, and and he I was doubt really you cool. You still have it, but do you still have it? Um, no. That I, would be cool, though. Right? Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> that one, dude. So, there's there's so. there's some stuff that gets to the to the end of that bike. Yeah. Um, so I was riding that, and we got a new first sergeant, and after about a year, and this guy was. Also black, but insanely prejudiced against white guys and Puerto Ricans. It was hilarious looking back on it. At the time, I just couldn't believe this guy could be that messed well, up. Well, the military is noted for breaking racial boundaries. Because oh, you're just please. a bunch of guys who are looking out for We're each other. We're the that's ultimate the social experiment. Yeah, that's the theory, is that you're a bunch of guys looking out for well. Not men and women, whatever. You're a no, bunch of soldiers looking out for each other. Everybody, and the, the whole thing of the military later on doing the don't ask don't tell i tell people one of the best crew members i ever had on a vehicle was a guy who was very very femme and not completely out but we used to go out drinking uh and partying uh and we just like drive to where we were going and then he'd go to one bar I'd go to another and we'd have a set time to get back together so we could get on the train or the you know whatever to get back towards base or wherever we were living and people were constantly made comments about him and I said if you can come up with a better gunner than this guy bring it on this is the best guy I've ever seen and he still is um, and the the issue of, you know, gay, straight, black, white, brown, mostly people in the military figure it out pretty quickly. Some never do. Some never do. And there's there's been some reasons. Uh, but they don't last. About it not the ones out, right? that but don't get it don't last because they find that intolerable and they leave. In the military, if you decide something's intolerable, uh do you have to live by this set of rules? You, you have or to live you have by to a, not You have here. to live within the, in the lane they give you, you know, like a lane of traffic. But there's nothing that says in the military that you have to stay doing the job you're doing. You can always ask to get reclassified and go to a different school and learn more things. In my case, I had a commander who looked at me and said, you know, you'd be really good at this. Do you want to go to a school? And I went to a, a school of bad tolls in Germany, Old Castle, uh, found on my time off that uh, the family that that castle belonged to was still around and one of the older members in the family was a, a sergeant major in a German tank unit and so I met with him and he says well this is the part of the castle that you guys are training in and it was 
munitions and explosives training and leadership training as well. And I got to know him and just before I left that school to go back to my unit to go be an armorer, weapons specialist, um, he and I went up with the German uh, Wehrmacht, basically the Bundeswehrmacht is the German army now, um, and loved, loved being with those guys because they always had a beer tent. <laughs> the French got great it's food. Germany. The Canadians got now. yeah. The French got good food. The Canadians got good beer and lots and lots of bacon. <laughs> and the Americans, well, you know, we're giving our food away to the indigenous, the, the locals, in and hanging out with the Germans for their beer tent, and it, it was. You met people from all over the world the longer you were in, and uh, you trained with people, you fought and bled next to people, and you never thought about, well, he's from here, or he's from, or their family's from here. You really didn't think about it. You thought about that person. You thought about that person. That's all you thought about. And they thought about you. So that's a good segue, and we already touched on this, and it always happens this way, uh, to move into the next question. So that's obviously a bit of who you are. Oh, Bo has been in one podcast already that will be released before this one. Tried to eat the microphone, I heard about that. Yeah, and so he can be in this one too, it's fine, he's funny, little little dog breath. I may have to take a picture, because he's such a massive animal, he's incredible. Uh, But the second question is, why? Why are you who you are? Well, I did what I did over the years and changed careers, and within the military I moved around. Um, When I originally joined the military, I joined for one of the stranger reasons, but also one of the more logical reasons in my opinion, because I was kind of a little bit of a smart kid, and officially I was, you know, in the talented (laughs) and gifted program, because they discovered that, oh, this one's a little bit different. He's a little smarter than the others. Yeah, they and did that to me. They stuck me in it, didn't give me a choice. So I had a German uh, math teacher who had survived Ravensbrück, a history teacher who had survived crossing the Iron Curtain. Uh, Natalie Taskar was the history teacher, and she was the only one that survived. Her husband and her sons died getting across the no-man's land from East Germany to West Germany. Um, And I had some really great teachers, and they basically said there are no limits. All of them. They said there's no limits. We survived this. You can do anything you want. You have no idea how different the world is now when you're in your teens compared to when we were in our teens that was an amazing experience to survive not the experience itself was amazing it was the survival was amazing because they didn't expect to and I kind of developed kind of a fatalistic point of view to or just kind of a you know what's the worst that can happen kind of thing nothing you live you die Um, And when I joined the military, it was because a lot of my friends, 
uh, were getting into drugs beyond pot, um, acid mushrooms, no problem, but there were people getting into heroin in the 70s in a big way. And some of the coming of age at that point. Yeah, and PCP, and some of the kids. I say kids now because we were just kids, but some of the people I knew then were ending up either dead or in jail, and I was made the realization that, yeah, I'm getting followed by the police because I hang out with that guy. Yeah, this is not good. i got to get out of here. Um, and I can hear you. Yeah, and so I joined the military specifically with the in, ex, intent of only serving one tour. You know, do four years, and I'm done. And... When that tour ended, an NCO said, why are you getting out? You're good at this. Look at what you've accomplished in four years. You know, you're good at this. There are people that are staying that I wish would leave. <laughs> that, that is a common case in the military. From yeah. I'm not military, but, but I have a number of friends who were. And <laughs> he convinced me that I could take a break. Uh, from active duty military for a couple of years and come back to do what I wanted, which was uh, I wanted to be an engineer. I was mechanically inclined. I loved numbers and, and crunching numbers. And so I did. I got out of the active duty in 84 and from 84 to 86. I belonged to, you know, you're assigned to a unit that was an artillery unit based in the federal building on Wilshire in Los Angeles, and I never, ever saw wait, an wait, 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 wait. Yeah, there was, was no artillery. There were no artillery pieces. There are no artillery pieces. This is like a Clinton thing. This is like a Clinton or a Bush Jr. thing. This unit had no artillery pieces. This is justifying spending the money, it sounds like. So, on two weekends out of the month, I would go to Wilshire, and I would teach what I knew, learn from other people what they knew, and almost everybody there had nothing to do with artillery. They were doing basically the same thing. Killing time while they went to school and getting paid for it, and... Also furthering their military career, and almost everybody went back to active duty that I knew at that during that two-year period, and when I went back... Well, because of their career, that sounds super boring. Put me back in duty for a little while, right? But they were doing basically the same thing. Taking a break from active duty, some of them from some strange assignments, uh, some of them from mundane, God, I hate being a clerk things and they were waiting for a school to open up in the military to go do something else. And for me, it was combat engineering and transportation and ammunitions and weapons, and I really got into it and uh, went back on active duty. And as I was going on active duty, they asked, where do you want to be assigned? And I said, Fort Lewis, Washington. I've been there. I love it beautiful area. Yeah, yeah, and they said, you know it rains up there. I kind of laughed. I was like, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I'm from around there. Well, I'm not from around there, but... Oh, that's I, right. You're, you're but, from, yeah. Yeah, when we were kids, um, my dad had considered moving to Northern California, Oregon, Washington, even Vancouver, British Columbia, and so we made 
expeditions just on our summers. That's and wetness as you go farther north. Well, it was just he was looking for a place where he could take his skills from the Navy and uh, what he was going to... He'd been at Bremerton, uh, okay. stationed at Bremerton at one point. One of the, his funniest stories was jumping off the back of the ship while they were in Bremerton basically for a $100 bill because he, yeah, it's a pretty good jump off the back of a... Off the back of a ship is it's a pretty good drop. I've ever seen an aircraft carrier in person. Like we drove past a line of them. I was like, these, like they're they're city size. Well, so for him and a couple of guys, they took the bet for a hundred bucks. You know, jump off the back of the ship. Well, the guys that were making the bet (laughs) knew that the water was colder than hell. Oh yeah. And uh, my dad said, "Yeah, I made the hundred dollars. I don't think I even got wet. I hit the water and was out of it so fast." Well, being from California, has no concept of what the ocean up here is. Well, it's the ocean that it's river-fed, glacier-fed. It got it's the just, current coming down from Alaska. I've been in the ocean in Southern California. It's a totally different. It's ocean. bathtub. It's yeah. bathtub warm. And I've been in the ocean in Hawaii. Totally different animal. The ocean here in America or in Pacific Northwest, ice bath. So I it's amazing. Got cold. assigned to Fort Lewis, and then attached to Yakima Firing Center, which is the training center in eastern Washington. Uh, It's one of the only places west of the Mississippi where you can play with big explosives and artillery pieces and things like that. Uh, But I also got assigned to teach ROTC to cadets at the U of O for three years, which was pretty cool. So while I was there, I was officially faculty on one hand, but I could had so much free time. I was taking classes, and I tell people my na- nightmare term was I had 28 units one term, but four of them were PE, you know, physical education classes, fencing, judo, taekwondo, swimming. Uh, I took dance. For yeah, swim credits. improvement. <laughs> well, I signed up for a swimming. And then continued taking. Dance. I signed up for a swim improvement class, thinking it was you know okay just to help you swim better. And what it was, it was the kids that were the students that were on the U of O swim team. And it was an hour and a half of sprints. Intensive. Of sprints and treading water for an hour and a half on some days. My kid takes those kind of classes. Like he does weight training classes and it's straight up for the lacrosse team. And And it's very intensive for that sport, the way they are going at it. And he gets credit for it. But, I mean, they bust ass in it. Well, and I've been a Boy Scout. So during Boy Scouts, I got qualified as a Red Cross lifeguard. And in the military, when I was at Hood, one of my tours, the the old saying is never volunteer for anything in the military. Well, they came around and asked, hey, anybody here ever been a lifeguard? And I didn't even think about it. I said, yeah, I have. And one other guy raised his hand and they said, well, you're going to be a lifeguard again. And we had no idea what they were talking about. So instead of going through the Red Cross lifeguard training we did open water lifeguard training for a month and a half and you swam two miles with a 40 pound uh pack on in open water in open water and then they, you got they like hella drop you or do you like yeah. swim out of, swim yeah, out of literally they hella drop you and they drop some guys with zodiacs uh the inflatable black boats that you see those aren't for pleasure <laughs> um <laughs> 
and you swim as a group and you try and take care of each other and haul along and encourage each other but you also learn all the good Red Cross life-saving techniques of how to approach a drowning victim or someone who's having problems swimming and when that was all done they said okay so from April 15th to October 15th you're going to be a lifeguard at Belton Lake here on Fort Hood, Texas Two days on, two days off, your uniforms, flip-flops, shorts, a t-shirt that says lifeguard, and a whistle. Wow, okay. That's all you need. And we were like children <laughs> with no supervision. We all had looked like golden retrievers, long hair and playing in the water. We had guys growing handlebar mustaches, definitely not regulation. Hey, hey check yourself. <laughs> oh, hey, you know. Uh, I mean, we are both uh, mustachioed fellows. Yeah, and... <laughs> Uh, did that for two years, uh, and I went back to my unit, and after, you know, the second uh, stint as a six months for a lifeguard, I drove from Texas to California to go visit my parents, and I got pulled over in Arizona by immigration. I was so brown. Driving along with my arm out the window, and I got pulled over by immigration. That was Sitting funny. on the beach. That was funny. That is funny. Um, and then I got done with doing that, like I said, and I decided I wanted to go to jump school and ranger school, and there were rangers at Fort Lewis. So I just literally walked over to the unit and said, I'd like to transfer to your unit from the Triple Nickel, which is five of the 55th engineers, they're pretty famous. Pretty cool they sounding, built yeah. some of Patton's pontoon bridges. They were attached to Second and Third Armor Division. Um, I Quint- certainly hope the five one zero calls themselves the Five and Dime. That would be cool. That would be an interesting <laughs> one. Um, I don't know. We got to meet somebody. But the military op- offered all kinds of opportunities to go places. Um, in 1995, 50 years after the end of the World Second World War, we got assigned. Uh, an opportunity to go clean up some toxic waste sites the Russians had left behind. Because when the Russians left former Soviet countries, they just packed up what they had and just threw everything in Well, they're still dealing with that. They're still dealing with that. Well, we went Apparently, it was just a couple weeks ago, Ukraine got rid of the last supposed known nuclear weapon. We were in the the Czech Republic and Poland, and we were there with engineering equipment, bulldozers, backhoes, graders, dump trucks, and we built an incinerator that burned at about 8,500 degrees, and we shoveled and scooped up and waded in muck pits trying to figure out what we had, sampling, and God knows what all we touched, but I, you know, I got skin cancer that I occasionally have to go in and go, yeah, I got a new mole, and they clean it Does off the with VA the help you with, that? with the VA it's, the VA is not all it's cracked up to be that, that's why I ask is because there's a lot of struggles with the um, VA especially if you're dealing with mental health issues and such the um, mental health issues but, physical issues yeah I hear it's a really slow tedious and, and almost painful process for somebody who did that work for the country it's um, really depressing to see how much effort you have to get that you have to put in to get the benefits that they promised you from the very get-go. Yeah. Um, 
It's 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 a bureaucracy, and frankly, they act like it's money coming out of their wallet. Sometimes it's currently not a functional system. It needs no. to be really readjusted and reassessed and, and, and fixed up. And when, I don't know how to start all that, but well, when Eric Shinseki was put in charge of the VA, he actually started making changes, and a lot of people who were military veterans that were working at the VA were just working there just so they could get their twenty years, so they could get their retirement. And they were useless. I have friends who are like, and I did two stints so that I could get extra college money, and they haven't gotten the first college money. Yeah. The, milita- know, it's, the, it's the really VA stiffed me for quite a bit of money for my student loans, and that was really irritating. Um, well, that's pretty depressing. Let's I, move I, on don't think, the next I don't thing. think I'll ever get that money, and I'm not worried about it. It's water under the bridge as far as I'm concerned. But then we went back to Germany and, like I said, Poland, Czech Republic in 95, and they reenacted a lot. I mean, we saw memorials for American soldiers in Soviet countries that had been there since the end of the war, which Mm -hmm. was kind of like, wow, they actually respected us as opponents enough Put up memorials well, and they for have respect us. for the human being that is not common. And we sat down and drank with people that had been conscripted and had been in Afghanistan, which coincidentally I had been there training the Mujahideen how to use the rockets to shoot down the Russians. And we sat down in beer houses, ghost houses, uh, with guys from the Czech army and there's East some, German army and we're drinking some great and we were literally foreign we had yeah, been opponents been on, yeah. we'd shot at each other there's some great stories out there of like people that literally did shoot one another like not shot at like I oh, we, shot we you probably at Normandy did shoot at each other and they meet and they meet 40 years later like there's some really cool stories of you like and that. we got to know them well and they said in in 95 they said yeah you guys are going to end up in Afghanistan and I said bullshit and they said yeah we'll see <laughs> and they were right yeah so yeah stay in touch with them all right um, life has gotten better for them over the years too so so next question is, what makes you unique? What defines I'm not Doug? worried about what other people think about me. I ride a motorcycle. I do some things that people would say were somewhat irrational, like buying a motorcycle that will do over 200 miles an hour. I'll never do 200 miles an hour. Is that one out there? The no, one that one won't okay. do about... Well, that one's fast. <laughs> we'll leave that alone. It looks like it'll do 200 yeah. miles an hour. I... Spent about a half a house worth of money on a racing motorcycle that has a light and plates. But it's so light that I actually would have to add 60 pounds of weight to the belly pan of it to make it meet the minimum weight requirement for the class I'd have to race in. Over 200 horsepower on a motorcycle is absolutely berserk. But they made a limited number of them, and they made available to the public. Do you take it to the track and race it? Um, I have, but most of it is just to take it out and ride it around. Mellow is really difficult, but when you get out of town and you can see 10 miles down the road. Find a nice, quiet, long street. Yeah, or you find a twisty (laughs) road that you're on and you're having fun, and you just go back and up and down it a few times. And when you realize that no cops are around... You blitz through, have a ball, get it out of your system, you get done, and you get off it, and you're weak in the knees because it is so exhilarating. 
I gotta say, I drive that clunky Pathfinder that's parked in front of your bike out there, and it's in the corner real well. And I've run into some of you cats because I like those roads too, and the things that those roads lead me to. And some of you guys scare the fuck out of me. <laughs> Dude, seriously, I'm gonna see you in three miles. It's gonna be really bad. You yeah. just scare me. You're, I realize you're having a fantastic time. And like, and and most people, I would expect, if that's the way they go, are pretty like they're doing what they love right then. Well, and on the other end of the spectrum, I have basically 1955 technology. I have an old Royal Enfield, old school Royal Enfield. Really? 500 cc, oh. and its top speed's about 70, 80 on a downhill with a tailwind. Yeah. And that's I a go legendary there, motorcycle, though the Royal Enfield. And the Queen of England carries a Royal Enfield revolver. You don't want to know where, and I bet she doesn't go through the metal detectors. She's like nine billion years old at this point. She doesn't leave She's the, the palace very often. <laughs> she is the same age Marilyn Monroe would be. Really? Yeah. They're the same age. So she's 90, but I mean, she's 90-something. So and she still carries a gun, and when she goes up to the castle, uh, there's no road up there. She has a uh, Range Rover that was built specially for her. It's armor plate and everything. She doesn't have a driver driver up there. She drives it herself. And they've... I know somebody who was in the British military in the Black Knights, which we as engineers worked with at one point. He was one of the Black Knights, a guy by the name of Vincent. And he had been one of the Black Knights. And he says, yeah, we had to follow her in a helicopter. To a distance. She didn't want to hear us or see us, but we had to keep her in sight. Right. So they were up at, you know, five, 6,000 feet, well, quarter and, mile and the back. Royalty, the royalty of and Britain is they said we'd see that her well, the go up. anywhere is protected that way. Well, I mean, said, Kim Jong-il probably has people watching him. Well, you know? the whole area is clear and government property, and they said, yeah, they'd see her start down where the road ended, and she'd go up, and they'd just suddenly turn off the road, go out in a field, cut cookies, and then go up a, a hillside slinging mud and dirt and then just casually go All the rest right. of the well, way up. I'll buy that I'll buy that 15, 20 years ago but right now from what I understand she doesn't even get around very well. And the lady's um, the lady's not young. She does realize there, I bet are, she's there still are feisty. Perks. There are still perks of being the queen. You may not have any real legislative power but you're the queen. So what else, what else makes you unique? Now discuss what makes the queen unique. Um... Well, I kind of like from all of the experiences that came along and happened, just come to realize is that if what I do causes someone to have an opinion of me, that's not my problem. What they think of me is not my problem. Is can I live with myself? And that, like I said, for the two years when I got out of the military, off active duty, finally, part of that was getting some of that very hard edged discipline of myself out. I did scare people a little bit when I first came back. Um, Fun story, I came back from Afghanistan in 2003. I told the military I was going to a family reunion. They asked how many people would be there. And I said, oh, about 20, 25,000 people. So they said, yeah, it's kind of a big thing. I said, yeah. So I came back to a, quote, family reunion it was the Oregon Country Fair. And I was walking around in... Which, if you're a fair family, it is a family reunion. Well, when I first moved up here... I'm, I'm fair family on the outs currently, but, you know... Well, when I first moved up here, I got assi- a 
signed to Fort Lewis, attached to Yakima, then attached to the U of O. Well, that's a hell of a commute, so I bought a house on Lorraine Highway. And I lived in that house from 86 to 2000. And during that time, I met up with fair people and became part of the fair family. Um, my first year, I was literally a sneaker, no pass, no nothing. Didn't even it's have a, really hard. To didn't do. even have There's a ticket. There's always the one dumbass that jumps into the fucking toilets or something, or climbs a tree naked. There's that story. Actually, that, the fair is the closest I've ever become military because they have the the fair navy that goes down the waterway. And there was one year they made honorary fair navy guy passes. Yeah. And I had two fair family members in my booth that were Navy guys, and they came back and gave me one. And then I, like, loaned it to a friend so it could hit on a girl, and they found out, so they gave me a second one. Oh, wow. That's the closest I've ever been to actual military, is, is fair Navy. It's a bunch of stoners in a canoe looking for That's an understatement. In a creek. That's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. Mostly it's mushrooms now. (laughs) Yeah, that could be strange, too. Whoa, water, dude. Those guys are good. Um, But, yeah, so I came back in 2003 for a family reunion, and a la Alice's Restaurant, somewhere enshrined in a manila envelope, somewhere in a filing cabinet in St. Louis, Missouri, is my leave form with the stamp of all three days of the wrist stamps was a troll, a fairy, and a dragon stamped on my leave form, ensconced in the government records. And I walked around the fair that whole time in Berkey's and a pair of Special Forces uh, running shorts, and that was about it. Well, it's fair. Uh, And many times you're lucky to have that much clothing on. Well, and I had a high and tight (coughs) that was scarier than hell. And there were a lot of people that just walked up and said, it's a good thing you're here. And I told them, yeah, I did this because I needed to decompress. And if there's any place that I feel safe, this is That is, is kind it. of the opposite of military. This yeah. is the one place I really strangely very much just am incredibly vulnerable. You. And people are going to have an opinion just looking at me, yeah. you know, walking around wearing my doggy tags, which I still wear, only because... Lots of people do, though. Well, it has my blood type on it, among other things. Right. Um, and it identifies me. Well, um, when you wear them for 20 years, you kind of might have a habit. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, with a high and tight haircut and my aviator sunglasses, and like I said, Special Forces, Dale Presso Liber on them, people were like, what is this? And I tell them that I'd just come back from Afghanistan to go to the country fair because I needed to decompress and I got people treated you. excellently yeah. by the people I was it's an kind amazing of, place I place. was kind of nervous doing this because I wasn't sure if people that, that being in the military in Afghanistan in 2003 was not exactly a popular thing yeah, people you were, didn't you were go back from there and you were diving into their culture and that's all they really need and those people are fantastic that way. That's all they really do. So, so yeah, uh, it's just the adaptability, I guess, makes me kind of unique in that aspect. But I basically, uh, I mean, the the joke is, you know, I, I wear leathers uh, not to look bad because, because you're right road rash it. sucks. Yeah. Um, it is and, a nice set of letters. And if I have to kill you, I'm, I'm already dressed in black for your funeral. 
<laughs> so I know we just touched on one and have touched on a couple, but uh, would you tell me about a defining moment? Like something that was really straight up life changing? Um. We're still here, man. Yeah. Wow. There, there have been a this lot a, of. This there have been a. a pause button if you need yeah. That. There have been a lot of life-changing events. Um, first combat. Um, the longer you're in the military, the more you're likely to see this, but also the longer you're in, the more jobs they give you, so they train me as a medic. And so the first life I literally know I saved, that was a moment. You know, Tell me the, about that one. If, if, if you um, I don't mean, I don't mean to command it, you. No. Just, <laughs> um, amazingly, I was involved in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and had one guy that caught around in of all places the butt cheek uh, that was no big deal but you're going to take a bullet that's a relatively safe place to take one well he was doing the John Wayne up on top of a Humvee sitting in the turret which is the hole in the top of the <laughs> Humvee where your 50 caliber machine gun is mounted smoking a cigarette and had his arm draped across the 50 cal just you know like a tourist well, it's a big-ass gun. It's pretty yeah, comfortable. Well, I mean, and, he <laughs> and here's the other part is he volunteered to go on this mission to provide uh, support for a truck that was going to go deliver water to a village. I mean, we were actually doing something for somebody else. And he volunteered to go on it, and then he acted like a yahoo and sat up there smoking a cigarette, not paying attention. And when they came under fire, he didn't have his hands on the weapon in order to swivel around and return fire. He tried to drop down out of the turret, and that was when he caught the round that ricocheted off the roof and was deformed, so it took a chunk out of his butt like a dog had bit him. Oof. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I uh, was in a Humvee that hit an IED. We were being on patrol looking for IEDs, and we knew where one was, and we went to go approach it, and they had quite cleverly planted another IED in the dirt, they'd figured out that when we approached an IED, we'd shoot the hell out of the vehicle that was sitting there that we suspected was full of explosives and scrap metal to make a mess out of us. Uh, and then we would approach it or fire it up with 50 cal or 20 millimeter or you know, hit it with an airstrike. Drones are wonderful for that. Um, uh, and had an RPG round skip across the hood of the Humvee. Yeah, and then the ID that, IED that they'd hidden blue, and myself and the driver on my left were in what was remaining of the Humvee, and our turret gunner was not present, and the two guys in the back seats that had had weapons pointed out the doors to left and right were missing, so we rounded up the, you know, what we had into a ditch of depression, so we were out of fire, and I just went and started dragging everybody in. Didn't pay attention to my own wounds. I'm dressing everybody else up, <coughs> stopping bleeding, 
sticking IVs in and then you put the IV bag under their head so it's pressurized. There's no trees to hang things on. You're in a ditch. You just put the bag under their head. Well, and in this point, in, in a ditch in the desert, so there's no trees, no trees. Yeah, there's no trees, no trees. <laughs> You're there. There's nothing to hang anything on. And so I dressed their wounds, and while I was working on them, I passed up and fell across one of them. Well, the army in its wisdom, as in all engagements, they, somebody has to be the hero. They officially wrote the report as... I threw my body across my fellow soldier to protect him from withering incoming fire, thus being a uh, you know I can't even remember the wording of the whole, but reflecting good credit on myself, my unit, and the United States Army as a whole, and the fools gave me a bronze star. And really, you just passed out from your own wounds. And really, I passed out from my own wounds and are fell those, on top of it. Are those again. the wounds that cause you to write, wear all the braces now that you um, No, or, those or is were... That you the, had a whole other experience of Well, like. okay, so I ride around on a motorcycle with a neck brace, a back brace, a knee brace, and a foot brace. And everybody's like, oh my God, you crashed a bike? He's like, no, I crashed a Blackhawk three times. <laughs> yeah, those are a little... Because Blackhawks don't just... Kind of like run into things and stop. They're yeah, not like I mean, a car or a motorcycle. To be in the air. Yeah, they're supposed okay. to stay in the air. Um, <laughs> been knocked out of the sky a bunch of times. Sometimes it wasn't a crash per se. It was just a hard landing, and a hard landing, well, is a hard landing. No helicopter. But they come bounce. in on. Many one, people don't know that, but they bounce. But which is among weird. other things, the human body is strapped to it, and it doesn't take the shock real well. Okay. Um, and usually they don't just come in gently straight in and bounce they're in auto rotation so you get downward force and a rotational so back injuries are massive um i have crushed discs and cracked vertebrae i got two vertebrae fused in my neck two vertebrae fused in the thoracic which is your upper back and then two vertebrae fused in my lumbar and i still have two in each of those areas that need to be fused Plus, they've offered to break my tailbone and put it back in place, and I'm fine with it. It doesn't the tailbone. hurt. Doesn't matter. It, yeah, it's a, Where's it going? It's it, not like I need to whack it. It's an appendage anything. I don't need, yeah. <laughs> we got rid of that for a reason. Yeah, it's a vestigial uh, section of your spine. You don't need it. Don't use it. Right. Um, Hurts like a mother when you break it, though. Oh, yeah, it did. <laughs> um, and, in fact, a couple of times getting knocked out of the sky, myself and one other person discovered the physics of this, that if you jumped out of the helicopter about 15, 20 feet before it hits the ground, it's actually easier on you. <laughs> and we did. And people thought we were crazy, but when the helicopters came Easier to medical... to jump off a standard one-story roof than it is to jump out of well, a that's all, yeah. Well, you're jumping helicopter. into sand, and you don't try and land on your feet. You literally try and land flat like a pancake just to just spread the, the impact out. And then you get up, and you're cut up and scratched up, but you realize you're the only two people standing up. Everybody else is laying about because they're hurt very badly. And so... People said, oh, you're crazy for jumping out of the helicopter. And I said, well, notice, we're standing up. We're the last two guys to get a med- medevac. They medevac the most critically wounded first. That's good news for you. Well. I mean, other than you're not getting treated, but it means you don't need a treatment as much. Who knows? Any one of those any one of those could have been life or career ending. You know, and... 
I am flat out amazed that I survived some of it. Um, but even so, as being who I am, they don't like you to do things to their vehicles, like bumper stickers, things like that. So we would get the camouflage paint. Here we are with the graffiti again. Yeah, well, no, we, we did things <laughs> obscene uh, in the military's point of view. Uh, in camouflage, we had a guy do the Playboy bunny on the side of his vehicle. Um, lots I recently of, saw a lots of phallus variety yes. of, of camo. In, yeah. in the camouflage, <laughs> we would hide things, and then we'd figure out ways to wire up uh, the when the Sony uh, Discman came out was like the best of all because we'd been using like little cassette decks on, right. on batteries that we had to scrounge and wiring it into the headsets of our vehicles so we could listen to music while we were coming in and kind of like Apocalypse Now we would be playing War Pigs or Ride of the Valkyries or which or, version of War Pigs? The yeah. Faith No More or the original Black Sabbath one? The Sabbath. Also, well, okay. I mean, not, not either one is bad. I just if I have to pick between the two, there's the another Faith version no that was done recently, and I can't remember the name of the uh, Dresden Dolls. No, oh. uh, Dresden Dolls. <laughs> they're one. listed as dark cabaret. As they're their interesting. Song. Yeah, I am familiar um, with them. And her on a Kurtzweil keyboard and her drummer. Two-person version of War Pigs blew my mind, but we would go in to battle playing this kind of crazy stuff on our headphones, and occasionally we'd screw up, and accidentally we would play it over the air, and of course we'd get the "Who's doing that?" I don't know. <laughs> and everybody appreciated it, and, and after a while, they kind of knew it was us. But you know, if it made us happy, it makes you happy. It made us happy. You know, you're gonna deny us cold beer. You're gonna deny. Yeah, the craziest thing though is you're in the middle of a, you know, hot position, and. In the Middle East, there will be a guy that will come along with a samovar of hot tea or hot coffee and little cups. And there's a firefight going on. And he's walking through the firefight. And he'll walk up to your position, hold the tray out, pour the coffee, you drink the coffee, and you throw some coin on the tray, and he goes to the next guy. And there's a firefight going on, and he's walking through the middle of it. Well, in a, in a sense, <laughs> he's giving away our position. But then he goes and does it to the other side, or he'll do the other... To your opponents as, as well, Al Qaeda, Boko Haram. Yeah, he's making a buck and he's kind of untouchable. You don't shoot this guy because he's got the tea. <laughs> so crazy stuff like that happens and it's kind of psychedelic in a sense. You're just like, this is not normal. This can't be real. Yeah, and so we just kind of began to realize that this is a surreal thing. This this is going to be yes Holy that cow, was that, that was, was the dog, dog belching that, that was, was the dog awesome. burping <laughs> yep which is a <laughs> so yeah we we found some of the ludicrous uh, Giles and I were talking earlier about in Bosnia and Herzegovina we were going through and getting rid of unexploded ordnance that's what we do right and we came across. Uh, in one of the sections of a wooded area, an upright piano just sitting there in the snow. And a Bosnian was standing there with his, the, 
after the Russians left, they didn't have time for a fashion statement, new uniforms. They were still using old Russian uniforms. Right. Just didn't say USSR. So it was in jackboots. They didn't just say CCP <laughs> on them anymore. They <coughs> torn off all the Russian emblems. But there was a guy out there, probably in his 20s, early 20s, with his rifle slung over his shoulder, sitting there playing Chopin on a piano in the middle of the woods. And you just see this crazy stuff. That's that's beauty in the world that people create no matter where they go. No matter where they go. And I carried uh, CDs of... I burned so many illegal copies of Stan Getz and Dave Brubeck. And I would take them... Uh, Dave Brubeck is especially effective in the Middle Eastern because they use a time... Dave Brubeck used a time code. Uh, Blue Ronde a la Turk is in 4-7 time or 2-7 time and it's a very Middle Eastern time signature and you'd get somewhere and you pull out the beat up boombox I've got a boombox that's been around the world about 4 or 5 times and you'd pull it out throw that disc in hit play and turn it up and people would come out of the woodwork going wow what's that and they sometimes it would just like totally diffuse what was a tense moment? Um, I do know. I yeah, do know. we we would use music as an introduction. Um, we did things the the military. What they teach you in Arabic and Farsi are the commands: get down, give me your papers. Who's Al Qaeda? All that, and I learned the words. So it, can I have simple. a cup of tea? I learned the niceties that you'd learn in any other situation if you were not wearing a uniform shooting at each other, which is, Salam, Salam Alaikum, Inshallah, Allah Akbar is not a war cry. It's just, God is great. Mm -hmm. And then you'd, you know, they'd start talking, Wahid, Wahid, one at a time, one at a time, you know, and you'd break it down and with hand motions, drawing pictures, you learn to communicate. And, oh yes, Middle Eastern countries, yeah, alcohol's forbidden my ass. Date wine rocks. I've eaten lamb and had a grape leaf wrapped food that you eat with them. You share a meal, and it changes things for them and for you. After sure, a while, they sure see. Changes things. Sure well, after a while, they see us coming in, and they'd recognize who we were by patch and which vehicles we were in. And we didn't have to worry about, is somebody going to shoot at us? They'd come out, and we're not even in their village, and they'd come out to greet us and then walk us in so that everybody knew, these guys are okay. And we would do things like deepen the trench down the middle of the street that was their sewer system. We'd put in wells. We'd run pipelines. One of the craziest cultural things we did was... uh, Along the Tigris and the Euphrates, we decided we were going to make it easier for the women so that they wouldn't have to go climb up the side of the dike and then down to get the water, bringing it one gallon at a time to fill the two five-gallon cans and then put that on a stick and carry it back to the village. We figured, oh, we got this. We installed a cement pad, put a bicycle on it that had a pump attached to the rear instead of a wheel, and they could pedal the bicycle, and it would pump the water up Fill and the over the dike. Up. And then, right, we come back, and those things are either missing or rusted or just bent all up, and we're 
asked, well, why is that? And they said, because a man may have been on that bicycle. A woman may not ride it. Okay. So we cleared that away. We already have the plumbing run. So solar panels, we just started writing letters to solar panel manufacturers. The military had no... Now we have solar panels the size of an iPad. And they'll power your equipment, you know, provide power. But back then, uh, we were writing letters to solar panel companies for solar panels, and they shipped them to us. These are defective. They don't put out full voltage, but here they are. Uh, and we put them up on top of poles facing basically south and southeast and southwest, you know, th an array of three solar panels. And those powered a pump so that there was always pressure at a faucet. Well, we found out that, interestingly enough, for them, what we would turn to the right to turn something off, twist to the left to open a faucet. They run the other way they around. They run the other way around, so we couldn't figure out how we're going to do this. And, oh, yeah, their pipe, tidy, tidy, and, and their pipe threads <laughs> tend to be a little bit different or just are welded and, and brazed and soldered with lead. So we had U.S. standard plumbing pipes and equipment. And one of the guys said, how about beer tap? So we wrote Anheuser-Busch and Miller and everybody. And they sent us beer taps, which we installed. Pull handle. No longer a righty lefty. Well, it was kind of, you know, it's kind of a left-handed joke kind of thing of, here, you can have your water without having touched a man riding the bicycle, but you're going to get it through a beer tap. <laughs> Infidels. All right, so last question. What makes you similar to other people? I'm mortal. That's it. I live, I die. If I've made an impression on somebody, excellent. If it's a good impression. If I misguided somebody, I'm sorry about that. But I've tried to... Uh, a philosophy I used to tell people when they were getting ready to get out of the army and I held it true to myself every day you're above ground is a good day but if you can learn something every day or teach something every day you've you've earned your day you've earned your pay for today if you can be kind to somebody who really needs it be kind to those that are unkind because sometimes they need it the most. Uh, if you can physically cut it, do what you can. I didn't do what I did in the military or at U of O or anywhere else in my life because I was privileged or anything. I did it because I could and when I could no longer be a soldier, I had to come to the realization I couldn't be a soldier. And, like I said, for about two years, I was detoxing my brain. There are images and smells that will never go away, sounds that trigger anxiety attacks. 
and I've been out since 2007, and it's 2018, and I just recently had an anxiety attack, and it scared the hell out of me, but I have to accept that that's going to happen, and try and be there for somebody else when they're having their anxiety attack, be able to sit there and say, reach out, put your hand on my shoulder, look me in the eye, I'm telling you, it's going to be okay. Okay, we're dying. I think those are excellent words. It's to still going to be okay. We're dying. It's okay. I think those are super excellent words to end on. Thank Thanks. you, Doug, so much for doing this with me. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Yeah. Um, there, there's did. there's lots more crazy stories oh, we that, I, that I tell them. people. You know, There's stuff I did in the 80s while I was in the military that I heard about 15, 20 years ago, and I tell people... I didn't think it was particularly epic at the time, but the fact that it's become urban myth in some towns that I was stationed in about this guy, and I hear about it in a bar on another continent from somebody who goes, yeah, I know about this guy. And to hear somebody say that, it's like, well, I didn't think that was particularly epic at the time, but yeah, that was kind of off the wall. Just there and did it. Yeah. Thank you very much, man. You're welcome. That's awesome.